Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? Doing well, thanks, Pete. How are you tonight? Oh, I'm doing great. Before we get started, I should mention that the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the University of Washington. Today, we have a special episode for you. We have Dr. Frederick Matson as a guest. For many listeners, Dr. Matson will need no introduction. Dr. Matson has completed his college and medical, college, medical school in Texas before moving to the University of Washington for orthopedic surgery. Dr. Madison then completed two fellowships with Dr. Neer before returning to the University of Washington, where he's been in practice now for over 40 years, serving as the chair of the department for many years. He's made a numerous contributions to the field, having served as the president of the ACS, won the Neer Award, having authored over 200 articles, and having authored several texts that are considered classics within the field. Dr. Madison, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure to be here with both of you. So, Dr. Madison, maybe we could start off. Tell us how you ended up in Seattle. Well, that is an interesting story. Um, I was originally bound for neurosurgery and I had a wonderful neurosurgery residency lined up at the University of Minnesota. But before that, I spent two years at the NIH in neurosurgery. And at that time, um, which was back in the 1960s, what neurosurgeons did mostly was, particularly at the NIH, was to take care of intractable epilepsy, intractable pain, intractable movement disorders, and intractable brain tumors. And that did not seem like a uh, happy lifestyle for uh, a person like myself. So um, I did what um, what Rachel would do. I asked the anesthesiologists, who are the happiest of all surgeons? And uh, you can tell what they said. They said anes- uh, that uh, the anesthesiologists all said that orthopedic surgeons were the happiest by far. So then um, I started looking around with my wife at places that might be fun to live since we decided we're going to have a more hedonistic approach to our career. And we looked at places like Utah, Colorado, Vermont, um, New Mexico and Seattle, all of which had mountains and skiing and water and uh, all those sorts of things. And uh, there turned out there weren't any vacancies in any of those places. Uh, but then at the very last minute, somebody got drafted out of the program at University of Washington. And D.K. Clausen, who was the chairman then, called me up and said, guess what? We got a spot for you. So uh, I made that decision in March, and I was here in July. I, I love that your story has that you ended up at both in orthopedic surgery and in Seattle by happen chance, basically, that it was it was just the right place, the right time. And you've been there ever since. I've been there ever since. Every We've had a lot of opportunities to move in uh, places. And uh, every time that the interview committees would call up, my wife would say, let me get them on the phone. And we, she would nix the whole idea. So we're here for <laughs> the duration, I think. And um Tell me, so you 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 went to the University of Washington for orthopedic surgery, and then after that, you went to visit Dr. Neer. Tell me what drew you to the shoulder. Well, I don't know if you know of Ted Hansen, uh, who was my residency mentor, uh, along with Dr. Clausen. And Ted Hansen said, you know, we don't have anybody here who knows anything about the shoulder. Why don't you go to Dr. Neer in New York and see if you can learn something about the shoulder and bring it back here? So he sent me on this uh, expedition uh, to Columbia, and uh, Dr. Neer was welcoming enough to uh, let us stay with him in his house uh, in Englewood, New Jersey. And every morning, he would drive me in his Cadillac across the George Washington Bridge to uh, Columbia Presbyterian Hospital, where we would spend from about six o'clock in the morning to 10 o'clock at night, and then we'd go home for, for dinner and his Exhausted wife who'd been waiting for us all day would try to put some dinner on before we flopped into bed <laughs> to get, get up and go around the next day. And uh, so that was really an enlightening experience, as you can imagine. And um, the um, it was so good that I came back uh, here and I said, man, I know everything. Work some of his magic on my patients. And guess what? 
I didn't know hardly anything about the shoulder because everything that he did so easily was not so easy in my hands. So I said, I need to go back for a second helping. So um, it was a lot easier the second time. And as long as we're talking about uh, advice for young people, I really think that getting a chance to do a fellowship, get back into uh, their own practice, and then after they've been there for a while, go back and either visit with the same people or uh, some different people to really see how they do it. And uh, I learned so much that second time. And I was sitting there in the OR just saying, oh, so that's how he does it. That's how he exposes the glenoid. That's how he does this. That's how he does that. And that was really, really beneficial to me. So how long did you go back the second time? Uh, it was three months the first time and about three weeks the second time. And then after that, you began doing shoulder replacements and shoulder fractures and rotator cuff repairs back at the University of Washington. Correct. Now, one of the things I want to ask you about is, early, you know, you've done just a huge volume of seminal research within our field. Some of the, some of the early studies, for the listeners who don't know, they definitely should look up because they definitely inform a lot of the basic concepts. One of the ones I want to ask you about is particularly about there's this set of experiments you did with volunteers where they had bone pins drilled into their collarbone, their humerus, and their scapula, and then you did motion analysis studies. So I have a bunch of questions about this, but how did you conceive of these studies? Who volunteered? Did the IRB give you trouble for this? How, what did you learn with these studies? Are you two volunteering? We are still looking for more volunteers. <laughs> I'm so volunteering, the Pete. The problem was, <laughs> well, again, I'm, I'm going to be guilty of long answers to short questions. And so cut me off. You can just go like this if you've heard enough. But I was, as I traveled around, I was really amazed at how every surgeon that I visited would measure range of motion in a different way. And one very famous surgeon would have his post-operative patients lying on the bed and he would press their humerus until it was parallel with the plinth and say 180 degrees of elevation. And obviously a lot of that was achieved by scapula uh, thoracic or by lumbar motion. So I said, you know, I'm not sure that we really know where the motion is taking place. And so we tried to do it with uh, x-rays and that was difficult and uh, tried to do it with, you know, taped on markers on the skin and that was difficult so we said you know we really need to know what the bones are doing so what we did was exactly what you said peter is we um we drilled um pins into the humerus drilled pins into the uh, chromium the scapular spine actually and then we had a transmitter on the sternum and that uh, gave us three reference points and we used what was called at that time, a flock of birds, it's uh, electromagnetic um, sensors that would give us three-dimensional information on where each of the bones were relative to each other. And um, we had a lot of luminaries, uh, including Mark Swinkowski, uh, who was a, uh, looped into volunteering for this, Doug Harriman, obviously my wonderful late partner. Um, and we had a, even a Swiss uh, fellow at the time uh, who was visiting us, and uh, so he got looped in. So we had no IRB approval. I think the statute of limitations has <laughs> now run out, so I can confess that to you. But, um, and what was, you know, again, cut me off, but we, we had to put the pins in down in the OR, uh, and then uh, we had to go take the elevator from the second floor up to the 10th floor where our research lab was. So we got a, a lot of strange looks in the elevator with these uh, people running around with pins sticking out of their skin as we were going up the elevator from the OR to the uh, to the tenth floor where uh, our lab was, and but it was an, it was amazing, and um, we learned a lot. We learned, you know, I learned there that uh, the fundamental truth that laxity is not the same thing as instability, and um, we learned that even in a a mature shoulder uh, like mine, uh, um, you can take the humeral head and move it fully a centimeter anteriorly, posteriorly, and inferiorly um, without any feelings of instability. There's a lot of shuck in the normal shoulder. And uh, so that was one of the real insights that I got was that uh, you could have a very lax shoulder that was still stable. And uh, 
I call that the Nadia Comaneci syndrome, where she has tremendously lax shoulders, but can do, um, could do amazing gymnastic dismounts, landing on her hands and stuff without any evidence of instability. And I think that that's something that, again, is a little bit of a message for for young folks that you shouldn't be afraid to challenge the existing paradigm. Um, you know, the um, the sulcus test is not necessarily pathologic, and I challenge anybody to do a, a sulcus test on a relaxed woman g um, gymnast, and you'll find that the shoulder will go every which way. But then give her, her, ask her to give a little isometric contraction to the deltoid, and all of a sudden that shoulder is locked into position so you can't translate it all. Now, when Dr. Romeo was training under you, did you have him participate in these studies as well? Um, how did that go down? <laughs> Tony participated in a lot of um, a lot of studies, but he didn't put his body at risk. Um, <laughs> he, he did. He did another study that I thought was really interesting. Was that we looked at what we call the humeroscapular motion interface, and we looked on serial MRIs to see how much motion there was between the cuff and the overlying deltoid necromion. And because uh, we were trying to understand the effect of subacromial adhesions on range of motion. And we found that in moving the arm from internal to external rotation, there's a full four centimeters of excursion there. And if so, if you have an adhesion that's less than four centimeters long, it's going to impair range of motion. So another one of the truths, if you will, that I uncovered is if you want to get a stuck shoulder mobilized after a cuff repair or previous fracture or something, part of it is may lie with the capsule, but another part of it lies in the humeroscapular motion interface, which, which has to be liberated. Well, speaking of some of the other work that you've done, I think one of the accomplishments that I know Pete and I and so many other young and old shoulder surgeons alike look to is um, your technique about Riemann run. We know the published results are amazing. I mean, they're excellent. How did you come up with this procedure? What do you consider to be the keys to performing it? I think it's probably taught less now than, than maybe in the past because of some newer techniques, but still obviously so successful. So tell us a little bit about that. So one of the things that we um, fell heir to um, after arthroplasty became popular in this area was a fair number of failed glenoid components. And um, these people would come and they'd have clicking, popping pain in their shoulders uh, like you may have witnessed in your own practices. And so we just went in and we took the glenoid component out and smoothed out the residual bone and these people did amazingly well. And um, so that takes us to the third lesson for young orthopedic surgeons is you can learn a lot from listening to your patients. And one of the things that patients would say, boy, my shoulder feels so much better with that piece of plastic out of there. And uh, many of them did great. And amazingly, many of them would remodel the holes from the keel or the pegs of the glenoid component. It was just amazing. So we said um, some people were afraid to have a total shoulder arthroplasty just like they still are because of concern of glenoid component failure. So patients would say, is, is there any option to, for avoiding the glenoid component? And I'd say, well, we can actually just go in and grind down your socket to the shape that it was if we had had one in and got loose and took it out. And these patients did amazingly well and uh, we're able to heal over the surface and um, generate um, a fibrocartilage covering. I just recently put on my blog a couple examples of long-term follow-up which show really nice regeneration of joint space and so we're we're still actively involved in that and people from all over um, contact us saying you know my doctor says there's going to be activity limitation. If I put a piece of plastic in the shoulder and I, you know, what are the chances you'd be willing to offer this procedure to me? And so we're still doing it actively. And uh, we just wrote up a, a review. The review for JBGS was put together actually by 11 surgeons across the country who are actively involved in the ream and run uh, practice. And um, I think that'll be helpful for people that want to explore this as a procedure. Can I ask you a specific question about that? Because I think there's 
one aspect of it that I has been somewhat controversial, which and this has been controversial actually in all of shoulder arthroplasty, which is the management of glenoid deformity. So the retroverted glenoid. How, how do you, when you do a Riemann run, do you try and correct the retroversion? Does it matter? Does it not matter? Gosh, you you are all uh, you're hitting all my wonderful hot buttons here. This is great. So. Um, <laughs> Uh, I have a feeling that uh, the excessive attention to glenoid retroversion may be overdone. Uh, there are a lot of people that are obsessed with so-called normalizing or correcting glenoid retroversion, but what we've found is that retroverted glenoids can do extremely well without sacrificing a lot of glenoid bone stock just by making sure that the glenoid surface is concave and that the soft tissues are appropriately balanced. And so we have a couple things that Rachel's heard me talk about before that we can use in, if the humeral head tends to slip back on uh, the retroverted glenoid. One is using an anteriorly eccentric humeral head, which is like magic. You put it in with just with four millimeters of anterior eccentricity, that drop back that used to worry us so much tends to go away. And the other thing that you can use even as you get ready to close the, the shoulder is you can do a rotator interval plication, which is a very powerful technique and so powerful you have to be careful not to do too much, otherwise the shoulder will be stiff. But the nice thing is we use one, two, three, or four sutures as we march from the uh, lateral aspect of the interval toward the coracoid. And the more sutures, the uh, more you are controlling the um, the tendency for drop back. And that's a, that's a Harriman lesson. I mean, Doug Harriman really figured out for me the importance of the rotator interval. And um, it's, a, it's a great tool that uh, we use. So now, I mean, your practices, I'm sure, contain some of these patients as well. But um, we see a fair number of patients who are in their 30s or 40s that have what some people would call a classic B2 glenoid. Uh, to me, there's there's not a perfect solution for that, but the best solution I've found is to ream it as it lies. In other words, don't try to correct the version, just try to ream it to a single concavity, and then use one of the techniques that I've mentioned to you to balance the humeral head um, in the ream socket. And to me, that's a lot safer than um, um, perhaps a posteriorly augmented glenoid or certainly um, uh, less limiting for a 30 or 40 year old than um, the reverse total shoulder. Um, so, you know, they, the reason they have me in the upper left-hand corner of the United States is so I'm out of the way of uh, a lot of the standard <laughs> thinking. So I'm up there, as I say, if you look at the map, I'm where the staple goes right up there. Um, but we've enjoyed the opportunity to explore this and uh, it's amazing. Um, again, on the blog, I've got lots of examples of really bad, uh, what I call the BAT, the bad arthritic triad of uh, retroversion and posterior decentering and biconcavity and that have been successfully managed with um, uh, the Raymond Run procedure. It takes, takes a sort of a dedicated, um, to a patient and a dedicated surgeon to make it work. It's a little bit more of a fiddle than doing a reverse. But on the other hand, if, if you're 42, you know, it's, um, to me, it's, a, it's an option. And the question I always ask is, well, if the ream and run fails, can you convert it to an anatomic? And the answer is certainly, but I've probably done that out of the maybe 1.2 thousand ream and runs I've done, I've converted two to, to standard totals and none to reverses. So. It, it isn't like it happens every day that we have to salvage it. But I say, you know, it's it's the same operation. We're just managing the glenoid differently instead of putting in a, a prefabricated uh, socket. We are letting you grow your own. Can I, can I ask you a follow-up question about that? Because I think this gets to the heart, maybe, of our current debate about the B2. When I think there's a, a feeling in the literature that the B2 is caused by antecedent retroversion. And if you don't correct the retroversion, then the deformity will recur. Do you feel then that by balancing the forces, i.e. anteriorly offsetting the head, that maybe then the B2 is caused by eccentric forces to begin with from the surrounding musculature that could then be 
altered by changing the rain, the center of rotation? Is that is that would you say that's consistent with what you found, or am I reaching too much? So no, you're you're asking the right question, and it's sort of a cart and the horse question because. One of the studies I did a long time ago with David Collins from Little Rock, who currently from Little Rock, who's one of our earlier fellows this week, we just did the crudest experiment by looking at the amount of cartilage in the front and the back of the glenoid. And it turns out that in the back of the glenoid, there's a lot more cartilage over the bone than there is in the front normally. And so if cartilage is going to wear, it's going to wear in the back. So that's thing number one that uh, we've come to understand. And secondly is because we use our arms out in front of us, that means that the direction of action of the deltoid is toward the back. So every time we reach out, when Rachel reach out, reaches out for her drink there on the desk, she's loading the back of her, I don't know what that is, Rachel. Uh, uh, she's loading the back of her shoulder. She doesn't have any choice. And every time we do a bench press or a uh, push up or anything like that, we're pushing our humeral head to the back of the the back of the glenoid. And so I think the combination of having the softer cartilage in the back plus the way we load our shoulders is contributory. Now, obviously, if you start out, if you come from the factory with a lot of glenoid retroversion, then that makes the situation even worse. But I don't think that necessarily translate into a mandate to correct glenoid version because the, the goal is to get the ball centered in the socket just like a golf ball on a golf tee. And I, I have not become a fan of sacrificing glenoid bone stock to try to change glenoid version because it's been one of the most precious things in the world is glenoid bone stock. And if we um, start reaming that away, I think as Gilles Voss sh showed, you, you have really opened yourself up to uh, problems of where if you do a... a Ream and run or glenoid component loosening if you do a, a total shoulder arthroplasty. So I'm not claiming to have the answer to this, but the, the third thing that, that happens in arthritic shoulders is they lose external rotation. Then when they try or a therapist goes in there and tries to gain external rotation, that's going to again tend to push the humeral head back out of the socket by something that Doug Harriman named the capsular constraint rule. So if you push your shoulder against the tight anterior capsule, it makes the humeral head want to translate posteriorly. So I think all of those things conspire together to want to wear out the back of our shoulders. But again, I don't think that that's an indication for necessarily for an augmented glenoid, a glenoid bone graft, or doing so-called corrective reaming. Because even if you look at some of the most recent publications, like one that just came out in the JBGS today, you can see that when people correct glenoid retroversion, there's a sacrifice of bone stock. And when you put in, for example, an augmented glenoid, you have to take away some of that sclerotic bone in the back of the, the shoulder, which I'd rather not do. Certainly an incredible perspective. And I hope our, our younger listeners and even some of our older listeners are um, are listening to this because I don't know that we've ever heard it um, you know, in such great detail, especially comparing um, some of the more modern reverse prosthesis and components to to this technique for Riemann run. So thank you so much for for explaining all that. And this is just iced tea, by the way, nothing fancy. <laughs> um, you know, we wanted to ask you about a couple of the papers that you've done, two literature analyses, one uh, more recently on arthroplasty and the other one on rotator cuff, both published in JBJS, that suggests that with regard to outcomes, uh, for better or for worse, we haven't really made much progress in the last several decades with those two procedures, with the anatomic total shoulder, as well as with rotator cuff repair. What, in your opinion, you've been around a while, you've seen a lot, you've seen, um, I'm sure you've seen successes and failures with technology and implants and techniques. What needs to happen to change this? What do we need to do as surgeons and with within industry and educating our patients to make our outcomes better in these two very common techniques? So uh, what a fun question that is. If, if when we looked at, <clears throat> at the literature published over the last 20 years, what we found is that uh, the outcomes were pretty much the same. Take the SST, for example. Um, on average, just about every study has a preoperative SST of three and a postoperative SST of 10. 
no matter whether you use stemless or short stems or ingrowth or platform or whatever kind of glenoid you use, it's always the same answer. And the same thing with the ASES score, the constant score. You just can't show that over time uh, there's been any real change in that. And I think the <clears throat> the heretical answer is that I'm, we may have gone about as far as we can go with technology. And that remaining bit of improvement may need to come from other things. Like it's been well shown, you both know this, that a lot of the outcome of shoulder arthroplasty is due to things other than what happens in the operating room. It has to do with the patient's attitude, their comorbidities, their, um, their motivation. Um, whether they're ill or whether they're depressed, all these things. And I think to get that last bit, we're probably going to have to divorce ourselves a little bit from our fixation on doing a better job anatomically or with a micrometer and start focusing on the real reasons that a lot of these people fail. Like you said, Rachel, we're not seeing that many glenoid component failures anymore with, um, you know, just the standard all polyethylene glenoid that we use. It just is not a common thing anymore, but there's still patients that are not better. And if we look at those people, it's often what I'm going to call non-technical or non-anatomical factors um, that uh, account for it. Obviously some of them are due to doing total shoulders on people that have bad rotator cuffs or doing a bad job of um, or managing the subscapularis. But again, that's nothing that you're going to solve with um, preoperative um, planning software. It's something that you're going to have to achieve with good intraoperative technique. So my, if you, and if you look at the, the minimal clinically important difference, we're, we're within that of having perfect scores on most of the um, arthroplasty reports. I mean, so it's not likely that we're going to get an MCID improvement from anything that we can think of to do with computers. I think that that improvement is going to have to come from better patient selection, better intraoperative management of soft tissues, and um, just making sure we do a good job of understanding the causes of failure, which I think are less and less technical. We're spending lots and lots of money on worrying about, as Peter says, about glenoid version and that sort of thing. I will just pose the question, might we not be better trying to understand what are really the reasons for these failures and trying to understand, for example, if it's a subscap failure or operating on a patient that is has depression that keeps them from realizing the benefit, even though the x-rays look good. Maybe that's where we need to spend a little bit more money. And with respect to rotator cuff surgery, um, again, fascinating articles recently showing that um, rotator cuffs that look like they're healed may not actually be anatomically healed. Uh, and in spite of that, and this is, again, I, I like to I'm plugging in my computer to amp up its battery here. Um, Doug Herman showed that uh, in one of his classic papers that patients with re-tears of the rotator cuff often did just as well as people without re-tears, which is an enigma that uh, we need to address. And maybe it isn't sewing the tendon back to the tuberosity that makes these people better, but may maybe it's something else about that operation. And so we have, um, again, at the risk of, of heresy, a lot of patients that uh, have uh, irreparable rotator cuff tears rather than going to um, um, superior capsular reconstructions or reverse total shoulders. If they have active elevation but have pain on elevation, we'll do a really simple operation that we call a smooth and move where we just get rid of the scar and the humeroscapular motion interface that we talked about before and, um, and make sure that their shoulder is not stiff by doing a gentle manipulation under anesthesia. And these people wake up and they're better right away and they keep, can keep doing their exercises. So it's a, you know, a 15 minute procedure and they realize the benefit right away. There's no downtime. There's no need to wait for your, 
capsule reconstruction to heal or anything else because they're good out of the box. And once again, with that procedure, just like with the ream and run, we haven't burned bridges for doing more stuff later. But precious few of these people have come back to have anything else done. Um, so you can see that I'm sort of a, on the minimalist side of, of these things. And I, because I'm so impressed with how well people do without an intact rotator cuff, um, I'm not sure I can sell people on the three or six month rehab after a cuff repair. And I like to hold myself up as an example. I have an irreparable rotator cuff of my right dominant supraspinatus. It's retracted back to the glenoid, but I have no trouble doing everything I want to do with my shoulder, um, including orthopedic surgery. Um, I, there's so many things you just said that I want to follow up on, but I wanted to pick out one thing because I think it's uh, something you've really made a big, big contribution in, which is you mentioned the outcomes and how if you look at the minimum clinically important difference, there are many outcomes for which we are within one MCID of an ideal outcome. I know you've done a lot of work to develop the simple shoulder test, and it's certainly one we collect. Tell us a little bit about how you developed the SST. How did you how did you come up with those specific questions? And um, tell us the, 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 what we need to do next to improve outcomes so that we can get those without a ceiling that you mentioned. So first we have to ask ourselves, why are we doing this in the first place? <clears throat> in other words, we shouldn't be collecting data just for collecting data. To me, we collect data for three reasons. One is so we can learn what we do that doesn't work. Most important thing. And we, we all know that we, we are going to learn the most from our failures, not from our successes. The second thing is we want to share our, with our patients real data that have to do with Peter or Rachel's own practice. So my urging is that every surgeon should use some outcome metric that um, that they can easily collect uh, and that they can share the results with their patients. So the simple shoulder test, for example, asks really simple questions like, does your shoulder let you sleep at night? Um, yes or no, no five point liquid scale, just yes or no, can you sleep at night? And the third reason is that we wanna be able to share our data with other people. So if we have uh, a relatively common language, we can um, make that happen. So again, back to Doug Herman, he and I recognize this. And, uh, and I said, okay, um, we uh, need to come up with a really simple score that will minimize the risk of patients being lost to follow up. Because if you give people a barrier, like a long questionnaire, or having to sit down at a computer to fill out a promise score, you're excluding people from long-term follow-up. So we wanted to make it so easy that they could fill it out with a pencil and piece of paper and mail it in. So um, uh, I said, okay, Doug, you're gonna be in charge of developing this score. And uh, I said, I want only 10 questions. And so this was like Moses, you know, how many commandments do you get? So um, he said, I can't do it with 10, but I can do it with 12. Can you imagine Moses and God having this discussion? So um, <laughs> anyway, so he won and there, there are 12 questions on the SST. Once again, because of Douglas T. Harriman Jr. Um, and who's made so many contributions as I already said, but I said, we're not gonna do this five point Likert scale. It has to be yes or no, because well, even when we had the five point scale, people would still make X's sort of in between number three and four. And it was just a nightmare to read. The nice thing about scoring the SST is anybody that can count to 12 can do it. And uh, so the tax on the practitioner's office is minimal. The, um, the credibility gap for the patients is minimal because they get it. They, these questions came from a survey that Doug did of patients coming into clinic what are the things that bother you most about your shoulder? And so that's what he's boiled down. And then typical Doug, being a very religious guy, he decided we're going to normalize this. So he went to his church congregation and got everybody between uh, 50 and 80 to fill out this questionnaire so he could understand what normal people did. 
But because he was careful, he realized that some of those people may have rotator cuff tears. So he got them all to volunteer to have their shoulders ultrasounded for cuff tears. So the final group of people were A, religious, B, had normal rotator cuffs, and C, were willing to uh, fill out the questionnaire. So that's that's the story. You, you've mentioned uh, Doug Caraman a couple times. Can, do you mind telling us a little bit about him for the listeners, many of whom probably don't know as much about him? So um, I never envisioned having a shoulder fellowship. One day I get the call, get a call from Eric Radin. I don't know if you remember him, but he was at the University yeah. of West Virginia, a very pivotal guy in my day. And he called me up on the phone and he said, I've got this guy. And I wanted to come out and spend a year for with you. And I said, we, you know, we, we don't do that sort of thing. And he said, I don't care. You've got to do it. So Eric bent my arm and we took Doug and um, never looked back. I mean, he was, he was so incredible um, and really formed the basis for a lot of what I do now. And um, all the way from everything about arthroscopy, but also about instability, also about uh, arthroplasty. And he and I had just had a wonderful time in the lab, just going up there and just trying to attack every question, every question we could. And we had the, the partnership of John Seidels, who was a physicist who stumbled into our lab one day looking for a job. So the three of us just had a great time. And then the third member, the fourth member of that team was Steve Lippett, who uh, is just such a wonderful artist that could take our sort of difficult to express ideas and convert them into simple diagrams. Uh, in those days, the, um, the standard was either Netter or was this, these wonderful Demarest um, illustrations that Charles Neer would come out with. But they were so detailed, it, it um, sort of, it was hard to get the point out of them. So Steve taught me that, you know, if you draw a circle and put two little eyes in it, everybody recognizes that as a face. He said, you don't need to have the details of Rachel's eyebrows or your nose to understand that this is a human being. So his, if you look at all of his wonderful diagrams, and many of them are going to be repeated in the sixth edition of the shoulder, which is coming out soon, uh, they are really cartoons. They're just trying to cut to the point of what it is. So the four of us were had a great time sort of working these problems. But Doug was really wonderful, and, and his pa patients loved him. He was really an inspiration on how to work with people and how to gain their confidence. I just can't say enough about him. I was really sorry to lose him. You know, over the years, as, as you know, you've trained hundreds of fellows and residents, including none other than Dr. Tony Romeo, who was an incredibly important mentor for both Peter and myself. Um, and still, you know, to this day remains, um, you know, what I, I would consider a friend at this point, you know, and, and, and that stems from him being a teacher and a mentor and, and now a friend. Many of our listeners are trainees at various levels, whether in residency, fellowship, or um, not trainees, but early on in their career and maybe even with trainees. And I think your advice earlier on going back to fellowship after you've been in practice for a while is incredibly valuable, something I, I have been talking about um, kind of since I started, something I'd love to do myself. What other advice would you give to a young surgeon at this point embarking on their career, particularly a career in shoulder surgery, but even more broad than that, just a young surgeon in general, what would you say to them? So professionally, the advice I'd give is one, find a way to keep track of every one of your patients. Because if you don't, you're going to get two years down your, the line and you're going to say, oh, I wish I'd been keeping data on all these people that I have with this. I never thought I'd have so many. So this is where the SST came from, is to enable young people to easily get into the outcome business. And I don't care if you use the SST. I, I don't have a patent on it, obviously, and uh, anybody can use it if they want, or they can use some other score. I've given you some of the reasons why the SST works for us. Um, it gives detail, but also is not complicated. But some of my biggest regrets are that I didn't start out from day one keeping track of every patient. And all you really need is the patient's name, their diagnosis, 
what you did for them, what their pre-treatment SST or other outcome score was, and then you're golden because then you can always go back and get the follow-up stuff. But you just need that minimal data set, their name and the diagnosis, what you did and what their score was before you laid hands on them. So you don't have to do this silly business of, well, compared to where you were before surgery, how do you feel now? Which to me is a nonsensical question because who's going to remember? And that's really a question like, how much do you like your doctor? To me, that's what that question is. Um, and this, the, the second question is, and um, that um, actually David Collins and Mark Lazarus and I developed together when we were visiting uh, Southeast Asia on an uh, academy trip. And we developed what we call the Shingha score, which was be careful about operating on anybody that you wouldn't want to have a beer with. And, I, and I've always used that sort of figuratively. In other words, patients that you don't feel comfortable with maybe don't belong in your practice. And we all three of us became, I don't know if you know Dave or Mark, but we became comfortable pretty early on saying, I know you've got this problem, but I'm not sure that I'm the surgeon to take care of it. And so I don't blame it on the patient. I don't say, you know, you're, you're destined for failure. I just say, you know, I don't, I just don't think that I'm the right surgeon for you. And we've never been sorry that we've told patients that. So that would be the second piece of advice is don't operate on somebody you don't really feel comfortable with because patients are going to have problems, but you don't want to have a problem in a patient who starts out angry. Um, and if they're angry to start with, you know, they could be a problem later. And the third thing is just go slow. One of the important things in the famous book from here called Boys in the Boat about the crew team that uh, from Seattle that won the 1936 Olympics that Hitler put on um, was that they learned to go fast by going slow. In other words, they had a very slow cadence and that enabled them to all be synchronized and row together so that they got the maximum power out of each stroke. And by going slow, I mean in the operating room, go slow and methodical, do it once and then it's done, but also be slow in pulling the trigger on surgery, be, be slow in taking time in the, op in the clinic to make sure you're answering patients' questions. Always wind up your clinic visit with the question, is there anything else that I could share with you today? Um, so they never feel like you're eager to boot them out the door. And sometimes if I'm late in clinic, which happens, I just say, I just want to explain the reason I'm late is because the people before you had more questions than I thought they were going to have, but I'm here with you and we're going to stay here until you've got all your questions answered. And very, very few people are upset by that. So those would be the three most important professional things. And also by going slow means that you don't have to start doing fancy stuff unless you're really comfortable with it, unless you've checked it out in the lab, just because they're doing it in Utah or Colorado doesn't mean you have to do it in, in your practice. And just make sure that you're comfortable with what you're doing so that you don't get out on a limb. And then on the personal side, take care of your health, take care of your family, be good to people around you. Um, so important. And you see so many people who have had hugely successful careers and disastrous home lives. And uh, I made the decision that that wasn't going to happen here. Um, and uh, I have three great kids, all of whom have, each of whom has two great kids. And um, so um, we're pretty happy. Same, same spouse 55 years later. So, you know, it's, I think those things are really important. And it, I think having a good <clears throat> life outside work, helps you do a better job at work. And you both are incredibly healthy and because uh, you are living in places where health is okay to have. And uh, I think it's really <laughs> important that people take care of their own health. And um, that gives a message to your patients too. If you look like you're happy and healthy, that means a lot to them. They say, that's the kind of person I'd like taking care of me. 
I mean, in, incredible advice. I think all of it is so valuable and it's, it's amazing to hear it coming from you. Um, and I, I, I know I can speak for Pete. I, I just appreciate so much you spending this time with us and giving both the two of us, as well as our listeners, um, incredible advice. You know, I wanted to ask you a little bit more and, and you, you kind of created a perfect segue about, um, your family. So, you know, Dr. Romeo would speak a lot about how highly you valued your family. And I think, you know, for me, sometimes it is hard looking at surgeons who are superstars in their field and superstars off the field too, you know, in their family life, and they they seemingly can do it all. And, and that, from what Dr. Romeo would tell us, that that describes you and you just really describe to us how much you value that life outside work. What advice do you have for young surgeons trying to balance it all, you know, trying to start whether they're in a busy private practice or in an academic practice or are a team physician or have an NIH grant or whatever they might have and trying to balance all that with balancing their family. What advice do you have for them in that regard? Well, rule number one is you'll never regret any minute you spend with your family. And um, so I've, I've walked out of meetings <clears throat> with my dean um, I've canceled surgery so I could be with my kids when they were doing their athletic events. When Susanna was running at the University of North Carolina, I'd cancel the OR so I could fly out there to watch her run for 15 minutes. And just, you know, that, that is always across my forehead. You'll never regret any minute you spend with your family. Or as, um, you see on some bumper stickers, you know, you, give your family your most important possession, your time. The other thing that I did is um, people say, don't take your work home with you. I always took my work home with me because my kids had work too. So as Tony may have told you, our dining table in there became after dinner, our homework table. And daddy did his homework and all three of the kids did their homework. <laughs> we all sat there with initially with our pencils and paper and then with our laptops. And the rule was they could always bother their daddy about anything, anytime, because their work was more important than my work. And uh, it's sort of all of my kids have done great uh, because I think early on they learned that work was not a four letter word. It was a real source of enjoyment and satisfaction. And um, I think that modeling for your kids that work is good work is fun work is something you do not because you get paid to do it because you love it and uh they all three have jobs that they really love interestingly enough rachel the two girls are surgeons and the guy is a computational biologist so um, um i did my part to um up the up the number of woman surgeons in the world. <laughs> the best I could do. Love it. Love the best it. I could do. Yeah. Can I um so I think both Rachel and I have been the beneficiary of your knowledge through others. I mean certainly through Dr. Romeo. Um, in addition, Dr. Aaron Chamberlain trained me and I know you had taught him a lot about how to do shoulder surgery. There was a portion of every shoulder arthroplasty where Dr. Chamberlain would mention you where we would, we would cut the humeral head, and as we were about to move the glenoid, he would say, oh, no, we have to remove some bone from, from right underneath the subscapularis. He'd say, you need, to, you need to remove that bone so that your retractor can go there to improve your glenoid exposure. And he would say, Mattson used to call this Pooh's Corner. And I, I've been calling it Pooh's Corner because I don't have another name for that area or what I'm doing. But I, I'm hoping you could explain to me why you call it that and uh, why that's important. Well, one of the things I did is I try to make, <clears throat> give things names that even I can remember, you know, like concavity compression or overstuffing or all these terms that we sort of tossed out, um, you know, the 40, 50, 60 rules, all this sort of stuff, and even names of procedures like the smooth and move or the ream and run. I often ask my residents, what does the ream and run <clears throat> um, uh, um, uh, the smooth and move and pride and prejudice have in common. They all have and as their middle name. So uh, it, it's, uh, but I think it's important to have names that people can remember so that they don't forget. And so <clears throat> we've discovered that by, and you have too, I think, that if you take away the lower third of the lesser tuberosity and then all that bone around the inferior humeral head, 
you can get tremendous access even to the most retroverted glenoids. And it creates a, what subsequently people have called a portal, you know, a way of getting in. But if you uh, take away that inferior bone, you have a wonderful access for getting to the glenoid. And you avoid any potential problems of unwanted contact between the humerus and the glenoid, whether it's covered with plastic or a ream and run. You make sure that there's no abutment there, which is really important. And um, so we call it Pooh Corner. Now, why do you call it Pooh Corner? Well, it's a corner. And one of the books that uh, I read my kids was called The House at Pooh Corner. And I don't know if you've ever read that book to your kids, but if you haven't, you should. It's the story of Christopher Robin and a um, a bear called Winnie the Pooh, and uh, he lived at the house of Pooh Corner. And um, so that's why we call it that. And maybe that's not part of the current uh, lexicon of, uh, of young surgeons or young surgeons' children, but um, that's why we call it that. The other question I had for you on a personal basis is what, for surgeons that would like to visit the beautiful Pacific Northwest, what hike would you most recommend? Well, it all depends on the time of year and it depends on um, what you're up for. Um, um, if you two are in incredible shape. So the ultimate hike um, is an 18 mile, 18 and a half mile through hike of the enchantments, which um, requires you to get up at about four o'clock in the morning and be done at about uh, six o'clock at night. Um, but it takes you through some of the most exotic scenery you've ever seen. And uh, you need to time that exactly right, but it is fabulous. And you're going through um, glaciers, you're going through wonderful alpine lakes, and you're seeing scenery that you could not see anywhere else. So it's called the Enchantments. We started out doing it um, and took, actually, I packed each one of my kids up in there uh, when they were little um, uh, and carried one and I would carry the other ones. Uh, and uh, with our overnight gear, it was a little bit of a slog. But now the thing is, in order to do that overnight, you have to get a permit, which is a little bit of an issue. But if you are prepared to do it in one day, it's a fabulous, fabulous hike. And you don't need a permit. You don't need an overnight permit to do it. Um, there are many others. and um, we have done most of them. So uh, if any of your listeners or either of you are coming out here, I'd be happy to uh, offer a free, free consultation. Uh, my email <laughs> is matson.uw.edu, and I'm always available for any kind of consultation, particularly about the outdoors. Uh, <laughs> there's one other magical hike, which uh, is on the Olympic Peninsula, which is called the High Divide. And there you are hiking on the divide between the water that goes into Puget Sound versus the water that goes in the Straits of Juan de Fuca. Again, absolutely marvelous scenery, uh, but that's a permitted hike. So you need to be thinking well in advance uh, to get it. I th I th the the, the, the uh, secret is out about the beauty of the Pacific Northwest. And there are a lot of people who would like to take advantage of it. So it takes a little advance intel and planning a year in advance is not too early. But I'm always happy to, to help, right. particularly you guys. Um, just let me know if you're ever out here. Um, but you guys have plenty of, Rachel has still got a couple uh, major peaks to climb in Colorado. Uh, she, I don't think she's knocked them all off yet. Not uh, yet. <laughs> <laughs> try, like, try to get to a few more this summer. But yeah. that... Uh, that first hike you mentioned sounds amazing. So might have to take you up on uh, a consult about that in more detail. Um, you know, speaking of uh, Seattle and where you live, um, one question Pete and I like to ask is if you could have dinner with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and where in your area, whether it's anywhere in Washington or in Seattle, where would you take them? Him or her, I should say. Um. I'd love to have dinner with E.A. Codman, and uh, I would like to have him over here for some of my wife's uh, Alaska troll cut salmon, which uh, she is the master at cooking. And when we were allowed to have residents out here to interview for fellowship, we'd all 
try to sell them on our program with some of Ann's uh, salmon, which she can do like no one else. Uh, and I'd, I, I would love to have uh, dinner with Codman because I, I'm so committed to his vision, particularly the part uh, of if not, why not? You know that you know the the whole thing, but follow every patient long enough to know if the operation is a success. And then this is the most important part, and we've talked about this already. If it wasn't a success, why was it not? And he was very critical of his own self, and uh, he he would. I've got some of his books downstairs where he talked about each one of his bad results and why he thought they were, and he broke them down to failure to understand what was the matter with the problem, failure to execute the surgery, all these different uh, things, most of which were self-incriminating. In other words, he took the responsibility for the bad result. It wasn't because the patient did something they shouldn't have done. It was because he made a bad choice or carried out a surgery imperfectly. And um, I really admire that. And of course, as Bill Mellon likes to point out, he was buried in an unmarked grave. And um, um, I'm not going to be buried in an unmarked grave because I'm not going to be buried. I've already know where my ashes are going to be on Mount Rainier. Um, so, so I won't have the unmarked grave problem. But I think it's really amazing that this guy who meant so much to me personally and perhaps to many other people in medicine was not at all recognized in his time. Um, so that's the guy I'd have over for dinner. And unless you guys can come, in which case you can join us. If you could, if you can resurrect Codman, I will fly to Seattle to have dinner with him. That would be great. <laughs> <laughs> we try to uh, resurrect his thinking a lot. And, right, um, right. you know, and, and his, his end result system, which you probably know of, I mean, he would mail out just an index card to these people and uh, ask them to fill it out and send it back. You know, how are you doing? Have you had any other surgeries? How do you feel about it? That was essentially the genesis of the simple shoulder test because it was simple. It just went on a little three by five card. You know, it's uh, how complicated can that be? And so we wanted to really not dumb it down, but simple it down so that anybody could do it. Because as you all know, if, if you have a wonderful study and if Rachel gets 85% uh, follow-up on her patients, she's high-fiving everybody. But we know that that 15% contains a lot of information that she wishes that she had. Were those the bad folks? Were those the good folks? Were those the people that had complications? What about that 15%? And she also knows that if she could take that 15% loss to follow up and make it 7% loss to follow up, she'd be really happy. So what we want to do is to, just like Codman tried to do, make it so simple that the, the number of people that drop off the follow-up scale is minimized. And now, as you both know, people aren't happy with two-year follow-up any longer, right? What's two years? I mean, two years in the life of a 30-year-old is nothing. So what we're looking for is 10 and 15 year follow-up. But the problem is the longer the follow-up, the higher percentage of people lost the follow-up. So to me, you cannot make follow-up too easy. You cannot do it. Um, and so easier is better. Now you can say, well, what about the SANE score, which is just one number? The only problem with the SANE score is it doesn't have any information that's relevant to patients. You know, there's, you know you've got a SANE of, 75 and now it's 83 or whatever that contains no content but if you can give them the pre and post operative answers to the 12 questions on the simple shoulder test before or after your reverse total shoulder or rotator cuff repair then you've got content that they can understand because people like them help develop the questionnaire it's not arabic or something it's something that the people uh, ask because they thought it was important to their comfort and function like, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming on our podcast and talking through your thoughts. It's been incredibly valuable for, I'm sure, me and Rachel, but definitely will be incredibly valuable and well received by our listeners. So I really appreciate your time. Well, it's been my distinct pleasure, and um, I love seeing you too. Uh, you look great. You keep taking good care of yourself so you can be around. And, you know, I'm 77 now, and I get up every morning looking forward to practicing shoulder and elbow surgery and reading. 
about it and writing about it and teaching about it. And my wish is that people like yourselves would continue to enjoy their career up well into your 70s and 80s because uh, a lot of people have quit medicine and I just can't see quitting medicine. It would leave such a big hole in my life if I wasn't doing it. My wife refers to um, my practice now as my daycare. It's where she, she drops <laughs> me off <laughs> so she can do her stuff. Uh, but it's a, such a pleasant daycare and I love the people I work with. And, um, and I guess one other thing about advice to young surgeons, really take good care of everybody that you work with. I mean, the housekeepers, the nurses, the MAs, the PAs. I mean, those are the people that can, you know this, but can really make or bake your practice. And it's, you know, the offices, all the office people, you know, I spend a fair amount of money bringing in food and recognizing birthdays and stuff just because I want them to know that they are really important. And if we can continue to keep them as happy as we are going to work, life will be real easy for you. And I think it's the same with you. I mean, people fight to get into my, to work my ORs, for example. I mean, they just love being in there and they love to be in the clinic and not because I'm a good guy, but because I just treat them well, I treat them with respect. I know them all. I know what their families are doing. And that means a lot to them. And even the housekeeper, I've got so many housekeepers that are my buddies and I greet them every day when I go into the hospital. Um, it's just a, it's a good daycare. Well, on that note, well, I'm sure we could go on forever. Uh, that's really all the time we have for this podcast. I will echo Pete and say, Dr. Madsen, thank you so much for joining us. What incredible advice and insight and guidance for all of us at all stages in our career. For all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.